It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, I'm never afraid of exaggeration when it comes to speaking about what my Lord endured on the cross. After an all-night barrage of allegations, physical beatings, critical comments, and vicious whippings, Jesus stumbled and staggered through the streets of Jerusalem with a cross on his back. He barely looked alive, let alone human. His face was swollen. His flesh was ripped open. His clothes were matted with blood and sweat. As he made his way up that skull-shaped hill called Golgotha, with the assistance of Simon of Cyrene, the Roman soldiers took him there and physically stretched him out on the cross. They pulled his arms to the point of separation. The ligaments in his shoulders were about to snap like rubber bands. They drove rusty spikes through his wrist and his feet. With every jolt of the hammer, the precious blood of Jesus spilled and splattered onto the ground. The muscles in his arms and legs contorted. His heart pounded outside of his chest. His fingers were distorted in agony. His body pulsated with pain at every nerve ending in his extremities. All the while, the Roman soldiers laughed. The Pharisees gloated. The crowds hurled insults upon him. And Jesus was saving sinners. Six hours, one Friday, it changed everything. If you have your Bible, I invite you to take it and turn to Luke chapter 23. This morning, I'll begin reading in verse 32. I'll conclude in verse 49. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 23, I'll begin at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
for the sun stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this man was a righteous man. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breast and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. It is Mark who tells us that it was the third hour when they began to crucify him. To say it is the third hour is to say that it's nine o'clock in the morning. It is Luke who tells us the crucifixion concludes in the ninth hour, which is three o'clock in the afternoon. So during those six hours between 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., Jesus was crucified alongside two thieves, one on his right and the other on his left. Initially, everybody was hurling insults upon the Lord. The religious establishment, the Pharisees, they came up and they said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ, the chosen one of God. Even the Roman soldiers wanted to chime in on this. They said, why don't you save yourself since you are the king of the Jews? For under Pilate's instruction, an inscription had been carved and placed at the top of the cross. This is the king of the Jews. The crowds also hurled insults upon Jesus. It is Matthew and Mark who tell us that initially, both of the criminals also criticized Jesus. This speaks to the mob mentality, the frenzy of the moment that everybody is chiming in. Even these two guys, these criminals, are wasting their efforts, wasting their breath to criticize Jesus because they will die of suffocation. Everyone dies at crucifixion by suffocation. So instead of using all their energy to muster up another breath, they use their breath to hurl insults at Jesus. Everybody is criticizing the Lord. It's in this moment that Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's an amazing statement. Most of the time, in this moment, the crucified person begins to shriek, scream, even spit on spectators, but not the Lord. Jesus says, Father, I want you to help those that are hurting me. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. Certainly, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels. He could have opened up the earth and swallowed up his enemies. He could have dramatically come down off the cross. For don't you think for one second that a few rusty spikes are any competition for divine sovereignty? Jesus could have come down off the cross in a very dramatic way, but he didn't. And in that moment, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
This is an amazing model for us. Jesus is a model for us in every way of faith and practice. He is our example in all things. And at this crisis moment, when he is exhausted, when he is feeling pain pulsate throughout all of his body, when he's overwhelmed with the weight of the world upon his shoulders, when he could have retaliated, when he could have enacted revenge against those who are harming him, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. So they don't know what they're doing. This morning I wonder, has anybody ever betrayed you, hurt you, ridiculed you, harmed you? This morning I want you to forgive them. You say, Pastor, you have no right to ask that. You don't even know who they are and what they've done. You don't know the extent of my pain. You don't know all the scars that I've been carrying for all these years, decades in fact. And you're right, I don't know. But what I do know is this, that if you're a believer in Christ... As God has forgiven you in Christ, you are compelled to forgive others. In that moment, Jesus could have enacted revenge. He had every right to do it, but he chose to forgive them. And also, don't miss the point that the them includes you and me. If you are a believer in Christ, we are part of the them. Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. For you do realize that it was your sin and my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. In that moment of extravagant grace, it did not go unnoticed by everyone in the crowd. There was at least one person, a criminal, a guilty thief on a cross. He acknowledged the extravagant goodness and grace of this one that was extended to others. And so Luke records a conversation that takes place between Jesus and that criminal. Luke's the only one who records this conversation. Luke doesn't tell us much about this known thief. We don't know anything about his name or his age or even his specific crime. He's left anonymous. I think Luke leaves the reprobate anonymous on purpose so that you and I can identify with him. For you do realize that you, like this criminal, we all are guilty in the sight of God. All of us are lawbreakers. We are just as as, uh, guilty as this man. We are criminals in the court of God. All of us have no shot of eternal life in and of ourself. Like this criminal on the cross, we can't lift a hand or a foot unto our own salvation. The only chance we have of eternal life is believing that Jesus snatches sinners by sovereign grace. It's the only shot we've got. That's the only shot he had. In that moment, he was beginning to put two and two together and the dawn of salvation was lighting inside of his mind and heart and he was concluding that Jesus is one who can snatch sinners by sovereign grace. Even the other criminal was hurling insults at Jesus. He said, hey, aren't you the Christ? Why don't you save yourself and while you're at it, save us too. His fellow criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said. We're all under the same sentence. What right do you have to ridicule the rabbi? We are here because of our actions. And if this is what an earthly judge does to us, what do you think God is going to do to us? Don't you fear God. Salvation was beginning to blossom in the heart and mind of this criminal. It was being illuminated like a lightning bulb, maybe even a lightning bolt. 
For Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. Don't you fear God? We're being punished justly, for we are here because of our wicked deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. If you and I read Luke 23 in its entirety, we would discover that one of the common themes of this great chapter is the innocence of Christ. It seems as if everybody is declaring the innocence of Christ in Luke chapter 23. It's referenced some seven times in this one chapter. Three times it comes from Pilate, twice it comes from Herod, once it comes from this criminal, and then a final time it comes from the centurion. It is Pilate who says, this man has done nothing deserving of death. Herod said, I could find no charge against him. This criminal said, this man's done nothing wrong. The centurion says, surely this is a righteous man. The word righteous means innocent in the sight of God. All of them are declaring the overwhelming innocence of Christ. Don't you fear God? We're here, we're hanging here because of our our wicked deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. It was John MacArthur who said that sin is never clearer than in the presence of God's righteousness. If you compare your crimes to the criminals that are seated around you, and there are criminals seated around you, if you compare your crimes to the criminals seated around you, you may walk away today feeling I'm not that bad. But if you compare your crime, your disobedience, your selfishness, your arrogance, your pride, against the innocent, holy, perfect righteousness of Christ, then your sin and my sin becomes overwhelmingly obvious. Sin is never clearer than when it's compared to the righteousness of God. This is what this criminal on the cross is beginning to understand. He's beginning to to fathom the notion that he is a sinner and what he's uh, receiving is justifiable. But Jesus is innocent. And when you and I come to Calvary, we must understand these six hours of the work of Christ as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. You cannot approach Calvary with any other understanding than substitutionary atonement. You may say, well, that's a big phrase what does that mean it means that Jesus died as your substitute he died in your place that the innocent one became guilty so that we who are guilty might become innocent that the righteous one was declared unrighteous so that we who are unrighteous might be declared righteous in the sight of God For several years now, I've called this the sweet swap of salvation. I mean, this is a sweet action. It's a sweet deal, don't you think? I mean, we give Christ our sin. He gives us his salvation. And that sweet swap takes place at the moment of faith. And faith is the foundation of all of our life before the Lord. It was John R.W. Stott that said, faith's only function is to accept what grace offers. You and I cannot go to Calvary without understanding the substitutionary atonement of Christ. But but we can't appreciate what Jesus did on the cross unless we understand the doctrine of imputed righteousness. I've been in church all my life. 
And I never heard of imputed righteousness until I went to seminary. And when I went to seminary, I heard of this imputed righteousness. And you may think to yourself, well, you went to seminary. That's a stuffy institution. That's a place where they just teach you a bunch of words that don't really mean anything. Oh, my friend, nothing could be further from the truth. Because oh, I remember that day when the professor was standing in front of us and talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. And the light bulb went off in my mind. And I said to the Lord, Lord, every time I go to a church, every time you enable me to stand up and preach, let me proclaim the imputed righteousness of Christ that he offered in those six hours at Calvary. Now what that means is this. The word imputed is an ancient accounting term. It means to charge to one's account as if it belongs to them. In order for us to have the imputed righteousness, we must understand imputed sinfulness. For during that six-hour window, your sin and my sin was imputed upon Christ. It was charged to his account. It was reckoned as belonging to him. That when the father looked at Jesus, he saw all of your dirty deeds and my dirty deeds placed squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus. And so our sinfulness was imputed upon Christ as if our actions belonged to him. And in exchange for that, by faith, we receive imputed righteousness. That the righteousness of Christ is imputed unto us. It is charged unto us. It is reckoned as belonging unto us. That the innocent, holy, purity, and righteousness of Christ has been uh, charged to our account. That when God looks at us in faith, he looks at us and sees us as the pure, perfect son or daughter of God. As that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have imputed righteousness. We give him our imputed sinfulness. I don't know about you. That is a sweet swap. That is an amazing deal that is amazing action that God did on our behalf in Jesus Christ this causes the apostle Paul's pen to explode in Romans chapter 8 verse 1 where he says therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus has taken your punishment so God the father for every believer in the house God the father cannot will not punish you or impute your sin against you because it's all been done at the cross of Calvary. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, but counting men's sins against Christ. For he who knew no sin became sin for us. Friends, we can get excited when our team scores a touchdown. We can get excited when we drain the three-pointer at the buzzer. We can get excited when our darling granddaughter is born. We can get excited when there's a buy one, get one free sale at Macy's. We can get excited about a host of things, but there ought not to be anything that gets us more excited than the imputed righteousness of Christ. For we realize that Jesus paid it all and all to him. I owe sin it left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. He gives me his righteousness. I give him my sinfulness and oh, what a sweet deal. Now, how do you go from guilt to grace? You call on the name of the Lord. Isn't that what the criminal did? Jesus. 
remember me when you go into your kingdom. He called on the name Jesus. That name means he saves Jesus. He called on the name that created the cosmos. He called on the name that taught the birds how to fly and the fish how to swim. He called on the name that parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry ground. He called on the name that showed up on Mount Carmel and showed up and showed off and defeated 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. He called on the name that protected Jonah in the acidic belly of the fish. He called on the name that showed up and shut up the mouths of the lion in Daniel's den. He called on the name that protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He called on the name that raised the widow's son at Zarephath. He called on the name under heaven, given to men by which we must be saved. He called on the name that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This criminal called on the name of Jesus, like in the story that Jesus said of the tax collector who goes and says, the Lord have mercy upon me, a sinner. How does a person go from guilt to grace? Just simply call on the name of the Lord. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That phrase, remember me when you come into your kingdom, what he's really asking for is he's asking for forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. This Jewish criminal has decent theology. By the way, there are a lot of criminals who have decent theology. This criminal on the cross had decent theology. He knew that according to Old Testament, Messiah would come. And when he comes at eschaton, he will usher in his kingdom. The day of the Lord will come. And when he comes, he will come with a holy entourage. And he will set up his kingdom. And so what he's asking for is, will you forgive me so that I can be part of the holy entourage that comes at eschaton? And Jesus responded, and he said, today, you'll be with me in paradise. How does Jesus respond to one who calls on his name and asks for forgiveness? He responds immediately, today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, you'll be with me. Today, you will be in heaven. Today, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Today is the day of your salvation. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise is a concept. It's a place. It's, a, it, it's, a, it's an area that is believed to be the abode where the righteous dwell. You and I would call it heaven. This word paradise is used two other times in the New Testament. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, and Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. Both of those instances refer to heaven. It's paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. This is better than you can ever imagine. It's not some event that will take necessarily, it's not only an event that will take place at the end of time, but today can be the day of your salvation. Right now can be the moment where you go from guilt unto grace. Right now is the time where you go from no faith to faith. Now is the day of your opportunity. Now is the day of salvation. It's in this moment that Luke says that darkness covered the earth from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. From high noon to three in the afternoon, 
the sun in the sky refused to shine. It's almost as if in this moment the, the sun was broken, unplugged. The darkness of sin engulfed Calvary. It's as if creation had been sucker punched by the crucifixion of the creator. The sun that should be at the apex of its journey across the sky refused to shine. The darkness of death came over all of Golgotha. According to Matthew's gospel, it's in this moment that the Lord says, Aloy, Aloy, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the opening line of the infamous psalm, Psalm 22. The very next line says, why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? In this moment, Jesus is God forsaken, that God the Son is God forsaken by God the Father and God the Spirit. And he cries out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? This is the moment that Jesus knew would happen, even back in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he prayed unto the Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. For Jesus knew that to go to the cross and through the cross, he would have to endure the splintering, the severing, the straining of the triune relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And it's at the, the middle of this moment that according to Matthew, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In those few hours, Jesus drank every last drop of God's holy hostility that should be poured out against you and against me. Jesus took an eternity's worth of condemnation on your behalf and my behalf. And the holy hostility that God righteously has, he poured out against his son. This had to take place. Jesus is the God-man. He is God, yet he's fully man. He's the only suitable substitute for our salvation. God has to make penalty for sin. Penalty has to be paid. And yet, uh, because of his grace, he makes the payment for us. So God is just, penalty is paid. God is gracious, he makes the penalty for us. Yet in that moment, this overwhelming sin and darkness and this overwhelming condemnation rested upon Jesus to the point where Jesus knew that he was God forsaken. There's great debate in the church, has been for a long time, as to whether or not Jesus literally and physically went to hell after he died. And while there's no there's no verse that explicitly says that he did. There are some who have implicitly believed that he went to hell. I, I, I'm not so sure that Jesus went to hell after he died. But this much I am sure of, that hell went to Jesus before he died. And in those few hours, Jesus endured your hell. Because we are sinners, because we are lawbreakers, because we're criminals in the sight of God, because our disobedience has slapped God in the face, we are deserving of hell. 
You may come into this building today not believing that, not knowing that, not realizing that, but let me just tell you that we are not good. All of us are created sinful, and because of our sin, a righteous, just God demands that penalty be paid, and that penalty is an eternal separation from God in a very real place called hell. You deserve hell. I deserve hell. We all deserve to be thrown into hell, but Jesus came, and he paid the penalty for us. Now, God created time and space he's not bound by time and space he exists outside of time and space but he has the capacity to enter time and space and that's exactly what he did this one who created time and space and knows eternity as well he stepped in six hours one Friday in the third decade of the first century some 2,000 years ago and in that window of time God the father meted out an eternity's worth of condemnation upon Jesus And only God, who exists outside of time and space, has the capacity to justifiably enter time and space and there justify us as sinners by having Jesus pay the penalty that we deserve. So in that moment of time, Jesus took an eternity or a timelessness amount of condemnation. It's John in his gospel who says that at the end of the ninth hour, About three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus declared, it is finished. In the Greek, it's one word, tetelestai. Tetelestai. It's a word that means it is done. It is completed. It is finished. What's done? The penalty for sin is done. What's done? The wrath of God is done. What's done? The punishment that you deserve is done. It is finished. Jesus, who lays down his life, has the power to raise it back up again. Jesus says when it starts and he says when it ends, Jesus is the one and the only one who can declare to Telestai, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up the ghost. In our Gospel of Luke, before he died, he uttered this prayer, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died the very same way he lived, completely trusting the Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus knows to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. So into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Jesus died. The one who spoke the world into existence was silent. The one who breathed life no longer had breath in his lungs. Jesus, the God-man, died. The centurion stood there and he said, surely this man is a righteous man. For Luke, that's the seventh declaration of the overwhelming innocence of Christ. Surely this man is a righteous man. Mark will say on the lips of the Roman centurion, surely this man was the son of God. Mark and Luke, they build their a gospel track around testimonies, testimonies that uh, are confessions of the identity of Jesus. It is the Apostle Peter 
who says at Caesarea Philippi, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And here at the end of Luke's gospel, it's a criminal on a cross who says he's done nothing wrong. It's a Roman centurion who says, surely this was a righteous man, the Son of God. Remember, why does Luke write his gospel? He writes to a man named Theophilus, so Theophilus can have blessed assurance as to the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you can know who Jesus is. So who is Jesus? He's the Savior of both Jew and Gentile. He's the Savior of the Jewish guy named Peter. He's the Savior of the Gentile Roman centurion. He is the Savior of the religious and the reprobate. He's the Savior of, of the Apostle Peter, the religious guy, and the reprobate, the criminal on the cross. In other words, Jesus is the only sufficient Savior for all mankind. And Luke writes this gospel so that you may know the identity of Christ. So now, you've got to receive and believe. Now you've got to trust and turn. Trust Jesus as Savior and turn from your wicked ways. What Luke says to Theophilus by writing this gospel, I say unto you today, this is Jesus. This is who he is. For he came and paved the path of forgiveness. He came and did some heavy lifting six hours one Friday. He came to snatch sinners by sovereign grace. He came to finish the job. It is finished to do the work. And you respond by receiving and believing, by trusting and turning, trusting Jesus as Savior, turning from your wicked ways. And if you call on the name of the Lord and ask for forgiveness, what Jesus said to the criminal, Jesus will say to you, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Today, eternal life will begin for you. Oh, my friends, let me tell you that there is a fountain and it's filled with blood and it's drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood and they lose all of their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all of my sins away. This morning, praise God, praise God, praise God for six hours, one Friday, changed everything. So this morning, you receive and believe. You trust and turn. Maybe you're here today and you've never, you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. Today is the day of your salvation. Today, the moment we hit the first note, sing the first word, the, the, the moment the music starts playing, you come Take one of the ministers by the hand and say, I need this Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you are a believer in the Lord. But you want to come and you just want to stop and kneel and pray and praise the Lord. Just praise him. Because Jesus took your sin debt. It's a debt he didn't owe. It's a debt that you couldn't pay. And Jesus took it for you. And he gives you his righteousness in exchange for your sinfulness. And I tell you what, that's better than any buy one, get one free sale at Macy's. Maybe this morning you just need to come here to the altar and praise his holy name.
as the Lord leads, you respond. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for who you are and what you've done on the cross. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you have given us even greater clarity of what took place those six hours that one Friday some 2,000 years ago. And Lord Jesus, if there's one here who's wrestling with the Holy Spirit, I pray that person will surrender and submit unto you and follow in faith and come and call on your name and ask for forgiveness. For those of us who are believers, on this day, Lord, help us to praise your name for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.